HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. How could the lowly little chickpea be responsible for a contentious and often controversial battle over national ownership of a dish? We'll talk about this and a lot more today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. Indeed, the chickpea. <laughs> it's created a battle, uh, you know, it's a, it's a whole other war, if you will, the hummus war, which has been waging, I guess, for the past five years or more. Uh, Lebanon wanting to lay claim to the dish, and of course, so many Arabs living in Israel, they believe it's their dish as well. Well, We'll try not to get in too much to the political aspect of it, but indeed, it opens up a whole other question of food copyright, of authenticity, food and identity. And here to talk with us about that, the larger questions, as well as the hummus wars, is Ari Ariel. Ari is a Dorote assistant professor in the Department of Hebrew and Judaic Studies at NYU, focusing on ethnic, national, and religious identity among Middle Eastern Jewish communities in the Arab world and Israel. And Ari just wrote uh, an, a very good article on the Hummus Wars in the spring edition of the magazine Gastronomica, uh, the Journal of Food and Culture. And I'm very pleased that he's with me here today. Welcome, Ari. Thank you. Nice to be here. So when did this whole battle about about hummus and who owns the dish, when did that first arise? Well, it's a, it's an older battle than that. I think since the um, it's it's part of the Arab-Israeli conflict. So for years, there's been a battle over falafel, for example, yeah. which sounds Tabuli, a little ridiculous. Right? Baba ganoush. <laughs> yeah, um, but a few years ago, it really became an issue over hummus. Mostly, I think, because hummus is a, a sellable product. You can put it in a package. It's easy to to export. So it became a, a more serious battle than the others. It became a financial matter. Then. Yeah, it became an economic matter for right. sure. Um, it started in some way because a Israeli company sponsored a um, a competition to make the largest dish of hummus in the world, around uh, 900 pounds, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. the first one. And Guinness World Records went to Jerusalem and, and certified it as the largest in the world. Um, 
ooh, I, ooh, I guess yeah. I guess that raised some hackles. <laughs> exactly. That was the spark that set off the problem. So who owns the title? I mean, I know the title went back and forth. You know, it was this competition, and they didn't wait for an annual competition. It was like every every four to six months or something, someone was trying to make the largest dish. <laughs> who owns the title now? So at the moment, Lebanon owns the title, and the largest dish was around 25,000 pounds. 25,000 pounds. If someone once said in some blog, do they realize it would take a pea to the size of the Dead Sea to, <laughs> to dip into a bowl that big? People always ask me if they ate it, and they did actually eat the hummus. It didn't all go to waste, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure, sure there was some waste, but <laughs> it was eaten. Yeah, well, interesting battles. But it, it actually... Um, goes deeper than that i mean this the the battle with who can make the largest dish that's the fun side of it and uh you know it's it's always fun to to take these food issues to another level um but there is a more serious issue and that is um the issue of copyright what tell me about that copywriting food or a dish is a, a, a huge question we know it's been done but tell me about that well, in this case, the um, the Lebanese the the Association of Lebanese Industrialists organized an attempt called "Hands Off Our Dishes" um, to essentially to trademark the names hummus and others like baba ganoush and a few few other dishes um, in the European Union, so that only they could sell dishes. They could they could only sell a, a packaged product called hummus in the EU. Um, they did not. Uh, go far enough. They didn't actually succeed in filing the paperwork, so they don't own that that trademark. But that was their their campaign. Um, and again, that's largely an economic matter. I mean, at the moment, two large companies dominate the world hummus market, as <laughs> as crazy as that sounds. Um, and they're both Israeli, or at least Israeli in origin. Now they're both owned by multinational corporations. Well, I know Sabra is is one of them that's uh, mentioned often. Yeah, in the Sabra is, We is, see that in the grocery stores in the United States, sure. all over the place. Right. That's now the world's largest producer of hummus. But they're actually mm. owned, at this point, um, by Pepsi, or at least a, a large a majority of the company is owned by Pepsi. Who's trying to improve their health image. Yes. <laughs> snack foods. So that was a, a good move on their part, I guess. Um, well, it's interesting that, um, I mean, the, the war, as we call it, uh, you know, is one where you know, it's a battle between chefs and, and hopefully nobody gets hurt and it's, a, it's all in fun. Um, and it's interesting that Lebanon should try to, to claim it as their own. I mean, it is... It really, it's an Arab dish. I mean, chickpeas have been around for as long as, as we have any history whatsoever. Tell, a little, yeah. tell us a little bit about what we know about the background. Well, we think the first um, domesticated chickpeas, they were first domesticated about 7,000 years ago um, in Western Asia, so, so in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And then they spread from there and spread pretty quickly to the Mediterranean, um, to other parts of Asia, and then to the New World. So now they're pretty much every place. There's... There's no place without chickpeas. Right. Um, we don't know a lot about the history of the dish, hummus. I mean, it's it's natural to puree something or to mash it up. But we don't know exactly when it started being mashed up with, with sesame paste mm -hmm. um, and with the other ingredients. Hummus, it's worth saying, the word hummus is actually just the Arabic word for chickpea. So okay. it doesn't actually mean a particular preparation. Mm -hmm. um, and we start to see some so, old... So the actual dish was in Arabic was called hummus... So it's actually called hummus bitahina, which bit tahina, is hummus with tahini. tahini, right? Which is sesame paste. Mm -hmm. um, we don't really know when that emerged. There are no Arabic language cookbooks from about the 14th century until the late 19th, early 20th century. So we know that before that, there were mashed chickpeas. And we know that in the 13th century, for example, 
Um, I, I think I give a, a short excerpt of a recipe, which is chickpeas mashed with sesame paste, but with lots of other stuff in it. So And vinegar in particular. Which yeah. we, we do lemon juice with it right, right. in today's recipe. But. And also a lot of nuts, a lot of mm. different spices. Right. So it becomes a very right. different type of dish. Right. Actually, that was, and it sounded very good. I'll find that in the article. We'll have time. We'll, we'll read that. I've actually made that several times, and it is pretty good. It sounded, yeah, it sounded <laughs> more exotic because of all the different spices that were in it and, and the nuts. Um, well, I know that there... There is, I mean, certainly there's mention of chickpeas in, I don't know if the cuneiform tablets actually mention chickpeas per se, but certainly in around Mesopotamia, um, the Epic of Gilgamesh from like the 18th century BC, they mention chickpeas. They are mentioned in that, in the tablets, as well as in a, a 14th century um, cookbook. Chickpeas are mentioned, but right. not, but as you say, not that specific dish. Right. So we don't really know where that dish emerges or, or when exactly it emerges. It seems to be common by the modern period in the Levant as a whole. So, mm-hmm. um, and of course, those the borders that we have now are all post-Ottoman borders. So really, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel. Um, Whoever, yeah, whatever they were at one time, they were all one and the same, right. you know, lumped together. So now we're, you know, they're, Lebanon's laying claim to its its theirs alone. That's actually the the biggest legal problem with their claim is that they're not actually claiming there's anything unique about their hummus. So it's not that they're using particular chickpeas or that their hummus has a particular flavor, and they're also not claiming that it's not somehow also Syrian or Palestinian. Or Jordanian, they have a particular problem with it being Israeli, which of course is a political right. issue. Right? Yeah, everyone acknowledges the fact that it is an Arab dish. You know, right. But um, you, you, um, and I was just—you said something about um, unique, and I was just pulling a, a line that you mentioned in your article is that um, it's part of a larger effort at preserving the imagined uniqueness of ethnic and national groups in the face of of a perceived threat of others. And it's this whole amorphous, as you say, this amorphous concept of authenticity. And this has been certainly something that's come up in the show often, and that is what makes something authentic. And it's... That's, that is a very amorphous question, because uh, I think we have to throw out, as we were talking before the show, throw out the word amor- of authentic and and deal with something else. You know, it's, it's tough. Yeah, I mean, I think there are, there are two issues here, really. There's a question of authenticity, maybe a psychological question of authenticity to, to self, and then there's a question of national authenticity. Yes. And that becomes much more difficult. Again, most of the borders, for example, in the Middle East are pretty pretty modern. They're, they're new borders. So nation states emerge, and then they each have to legitimize their existence in some way by claiming they're unique. Right? So as part of that, every nation seems to want to claim some sort of unique cuisine. And in this case, the, the Lebanese seem to be doing that with a dish that extends beyond their borders, which is the problem. Mm. It, you know, it, and it's... Um, as I was reading the article, and, and of course over the years, you know, hearing, following it, and you know, in the news occasionally, and kind of laughingly, not knowing how serious this was was becoming, and how serious in economic um, terms it was becoming. In fact, I was uh, talking to Andy Aaron's, the owner of one of the owners of Gourmet Garage, yesterday, and told him what the topic was going to be for the show, and he said. Ooh, I think maybe you're, when he said something, you know, treading on t- dangerous ground, uh-huh. they take their hummus very seriously over there. Well, and I, and then I had to laugh at myself thinking it's not laugh at myself, but laugh at the thought and the notion that it's, 
I likened it to to an Italian or more specifically someone from Naples telling the United States where half of Naples at one time you know immigrated to the United States telling them not to make pizza that they were not allowed to make pizza that they had the trademark on pizza well we know that this has happened with other other things in the past of uh, champagne in France uh, one is not allowed to make so-called champagne they can make sparkling wine in the method of champagne but only the wine from the champagne region the champagne grape can be called champagne and then as you mentioned in your article as well um, it was done the same thing was done in Greece, right? Right, with feta. Um, and, and the Lebanese keep saying that's the precedent for their case, that, uh-huh. that the Greeks now own this trademark of, of the word feta, the, the title, the label feta on products in the EU. Um, but in that case, they're actually claiming that there's something unique about their feta. They're claiming that their feta has a different flavor because of the milk that they use, that the, you know, that the grazing areas are, have unique flora in them, so it, that imparts flavor to the feta cheese. And they were also claiming that non-Greek companies were marketing feta by reference to Greece, by putting Greek flags on their packages and things like that, so that there was that infringement Making also. Making people think that they were buying a Greek product. Right, exactly. Hmm. And they also claim that, that Greece produces and consumes more feta than anybody else. So they were really claiming that feta is somehow uniquely Greek in a way that the Lebanese can't really claim um, uh, with hummus. But even in the case of champagne, it's clear that, well, one, it's an economic issue, but I think it also raises interesting questions of authenticity. Um, I mean, because we think of that as the most authentic and the most French products, right? But the the stocks that those vines are, are on are American. They're most likely American because yeah. of the the, uh, the disease, right? So I don't know. With all the, these products moving around, I'm not sure what, what's left of authenticity if we really dig deeply into it. And we might have to change that to unique. You know, replace authentic with unique and, and see where we come with that. Well, we're going to talk more about this issue in just a moment. We'll take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss this a little further. program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery. Kane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.kane5.com. listening to right now is called Past the Hummus by Night Sun. We are back with Ari Ariel talking about the hummus wars and the larger question of authenticity, food authenticity, food and identity, which we're going to get to, and um, uniqueness and who who really owns a national dish? Now the question, g- getting back to the hummus wars, uh, the dish we don't know who and when orig- who originally made it, when it was originally consumed. But then there's the question of 
Arab Jews and migration and foodways, migration of foodways. Well, the world has changed dramatically. Uh, let's talk about you. You mentioned something very interesting. You said migration provokes changes in foodways. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, America would have no cuisine. You know, so yeah. I mean, what? What? How do we separate um, what is Arab food from what is Jewish food? Well, I don't know. I don't even know if those are the right categories. To okay, look at, right? good. Um, but, but in the case. Specifically, with the case of Israel, the whole country is an immigrant country, right? Mm-hmm. So, obviously, people are coming to what was Palestine and then becomes Israel from different places with different cuisines that are all mixing in a particular way, and they also find there a Palestinian Arab cuisine that they incorporate into their own as well. Um, so, I'm not sure if the if the question is really did Jews from Europe start eating hummus because they took it from the Palestinians. I mean, of course they did, but they incorporated it in a particular way. And then at some point, does it become their dish? I mean, so the question is really, how do you indigenize a food? Um, And in in the case of Israel, you also, of course, had lots of Jews from from Arab countries moving to Israel, particularly after it's established. For the most part, they're coming from countries where hummus is not a major part of their cuisine, maybe not a part of their cuisine at all. Um, of course, there are some Jews that, that moved to Israel from Syria and from the surrounding areas, but most of them are coming from places where hummus is not a, a major part of their diet, but they much more quickly adapt to it. Um, who doesn't like hummus? Yeah, who doesn't like it? <laughs> and it's much closer to the flavors that they're accustomed to than maybe for Jews from Poland or, or Lithuania, right. right? Totally different diets, um, right? And, on, and they, therefore, can adapt it much, much more quickly, and it becomes a major dish on menus in Middle Eastern Jewish restaurants in Israel. Huh, interesting. So, I mean, it, it really is, you think of migration and foodways and what are national dishes, and it uh, it just, it gets, you know, it gets very complicated, again. And, um, and then I think that we have to rethink, rethink who's, you know, who lays, who lays claim, who has ownership of a particular dish. I mean, I guess the other thing that's probably worth saying is that there, there is no Middle Eastern Jewish cuisine until all these different groups of Middle Eastern Jews get to Got Israel. Got together, right? There's a Yemeni cuisine, an Iraqi cuisine, and a Moroccan cuisine, and a new cuisine forms from those in Israel because of the mixing of these new immigrants. Right. And it expands then from Middle Eastern Jews to Israeli Jews more generally. And I think as part of that, hummus does become part of that that national cuisine in a way that doesn't mean it's unique to israel right. but i think it is an indigenous part of it it's the way israelis eat mm-hmm. well in in the way they eat and you um you said that you've recently started teaching a course called food and identity i am i'm teaching a course this semester on food and identity i taught it once before in fact and one of the the major goals at least for me in that course is to get students to uh, to do away with this notion of authenticity, to stop asking about authenticity and to hopefully question whether that's even a, a reasonable category by which to to assess foods. And and you tell them to look at what? <laughs> well, I don't know that I'm always successful, but <laughs> I, I tell them to, to look for hybridity, which I think they, they get very mm-hmm. quickly because, of course, we're in New York. A lot of them are immigrants themselves or children of immigrants. So they're aware that there's this hybridity, but they're still... They're looking past the hybridity and looking for authenticity behind that. And I, I want them to realize that the dishes that they think are authentic are also hybrids. They're just hybrids from an earlier period of time. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, we we were talking about earlier before the show um, about Italian dishes that it came up, and and you brought up a, a very interesting point. What would you know? What is a what is an Italian dish if you don't if you eliminate things from the New World or things that are imported? Um, some other wheat, for instance, to make pasta, the tomato from the New World to make the tomato sauce. So, you know, you have to you have to really stretch a little further. Of course, you go to Roman times, and and then, then the whole empire was larger. And you're not talking about what is Italy today, um, right? Which reminds me that Italy is only a hundred and something years old, 150 years that's old. That's right. So. That's right. So, what what does it mean to be Italian? That's really a modern a modern concept. It is, and the world. I mean, the world has become such a small place. You know that we. Are all sharing different dishes. I mean, in the, I, I don't know when exactly um, hummus, baba ganoush, uh, tabbouleh. It became super popular. I know for me and my and and my peers in the seventies. It just sixties and seventies. It became you know wildly popular to have these dishes. Well, travel, travel. You know, was more popular than airlines were taking us across the ocean in the sixties, and we were bringing back other dishes, and we were being introduced to different foods and things, and and so suddenly. The world culinarily was a small place. We were all sharing each other's cuisines, and it's kind of a wonderful thing. And, and and I really, I think that yes, we can identify certain dishes as being perhaps originating or being unique in some form to a particular place. Right. But how they are then incorporated into our diet is, you know. The other thing that I think is important to point out is that we do have this all this movement. We have a, a modern form of globalization. Uh, but that's not new. I mean, dishes and people and cuisines moved always. So maybe the the pace of that movement is a little faster now than it was a few hundred years ago. But that movement and that hybridity is is not a new phenomena at all. Right. I mean, um, and I think it's also important in terms of authenticity because we have this fear, and I think this is part of what fuels the hummus wars. We have this fear of of globalization, meaning homogenization which means that then all of our local cultures and cuisines are going to disappear. Mm-hmm. But that never seems to be true. It seems, in fact, like globalization produces a, a, a new f- creativity, which produces new local cuisines, not homogenization. Mm-hmm. And do you think that that's part of the whole identity thing, that people want to hold on to hold on to something that they feel identifies them as a culture? Yeah, part of it. Part of it is culture. Part of it is the, that the idea of nations has become so predominant that we feel like we belong to nations, and then we have to legitimize them by looking for some sort of uniqueness. Um, but also, when we're looking for authenticity in other groups, that in fact is a way of saying that we're different. Also, that we also have our own authentic culture. So, mm-hmm. so I think it is. I think it's it's part of a fear that we're losing authenticity. Mm. I just don't think it's true. <laughs> yeah, but, right. Yeah, and and I, then I'm, we're hard pressed in 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 America, particularly to to think, well, what what's authentic to America? <laughs> yeah, I was thinking <laughs> about that one. this morning. I wonder how different this conversation might be if we were having it in Europe or someplace else. Right. I think here we we all instinctively understand that nothing is really authentic. Uh, hmm, interesting. Well, tell me, I still see Sabra on the supermarket shelves. So obviously these these wars are are not over. Um, or they're on hold for the time being. Yeah, there, so there are two aspects of it. One is the largest dish in the world, which at least for the, the time... That's the fun part of it. That's right? the fun part, although what's interesting is that the language in that is so military, right? The language, yeah. everybody's talking about that as a conflict or of weapons of mass consumption, is one of the quotes. <laughs> but um, Well, I, I, and I have something here that I... That I um, 
pulled from uh, something that it's uh, it's a war on a less destructive front, and um, what do they say? They say yes, it's a um, laughably that the as I said before, the soldiers wear chefs' outfits instead of camouflage, and the slogans are hollow as they say come fight for your bite right you know you're right uh well (laughs) maybe it's less destructive i'm not sure though (laughs) i mean certainly it's not killing anybody but but it is part of the, the the military conflict in a way or part of the national conflict um and there's this idea that floats around every once in a while that by sharing foods we can reconcile and that somehow is gonna you know, universally bring peace. It's the same idea of the Olympics, right? That mm-hmm. somehow e- expressing our conflict in this game is going to... Something that's common, a commonality right. is the food. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be true. It seems no. like anytime there's competition, it actually is part of a larger conflict. It doesn't actually mitigate the conflict. So, indeed, unfortunately, indeed. that's not the case. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, in these battles of, of who can build the largest, you know, they, they go on in all kinds of things, but never with such intensity because of of national identity and ownership. well except that the the um i can't remember his name right now but the the japanese guy that kept winning the nathan's hot dog competition that seemed to irk a lot of americans that that i'm not aware of that one tell me that one <laughs> well so every year nathan's has this competition to see who can eat the most hot dogs and it, it had for a long time always been won by an american oh the guy who ate the most hot dogs. right yes. so this guy whose name i can't remember i'm blanking on it who was Japanese, won several years in yeah, a row. Yeah. And that caused some some disturbance among <laughs> Americans that we had lost the competition. I mean, you would think who wants to be known for eating the most hot dogs in a <laughs> short period of time. But but that took on some sort of national pol- political level as well. Yeah, a loss of national pride. Ooh. <laughs> I could think of better things. Uh, well, I think that um, I don't know if we are going to see more of this food trademarking? I mean, you think that it is impossible to copyright a recipe because you change an eighth of a teaspoon and it becomes someone else's recipe. Uh, you can copyright names. And then again, I, I had, it's, it's almost laughable because the names, um, I mean, the English word hummus, which you mentioned, comes from the Arabic, which means chickpea. Um, well, actually, it comes from the Turkish hummus, which means the the hummus food dip, which originally came from the Arabic meaning chickpea. Um, But that the spellings, the spellings are all over the map. So are they going to trademark a Roman alphabet spelling of hummus? I mean, we've got, you know, you ask anyone how it's spelled and they'll, and you, or you see right, it on a, hundreds of different answers, see it on a menu and every menu look, you look at it spelled differently as well. It's a real problem with their case is that it is a dish. It's not an ingredient. It's not a, a particular, you know, it's a little easier with something like a cheese or a wine where the whole process is more controlled. Right. Um, Made from a specific, as you said, specific milk from a region. And, right. And, you know, so they, the they can't claim all of it. And in fact, the, the, you know, chickpeas are imported all very frequently. So it's not even clear that the chickpeas would be Lebanese that they're using. Mm-hmm. So their, their case is, is really problematic, and for that reason, it hasn't left Lebanon yet. They never actually filed the papers with the European Commission, so I doubt they'll do that. So Sabra will stay on the, on the <laughs> shelves for a while, and even if they got this trademark in Europe, I'm not sure how it would apply exactly to the U.S. Um, 
But the legal battle w- would be really problematic. And now, in fact, Sabra is owned, they said, mostly by Pepsi. And I think Osem, the other major Israeli company, is owned mostly by Nestle. Um, so it would be a huge legal battle <laughs> involving yeah. lots of legal teams. Indeed. Um, well, it, it's interesting to follow. And um, interesting that it's come down to food and, you know, <laughs> and who owns a food right and, and copyright. Um, it's interesting. We and you know you think what what migration? Um, what do you bring with you? Something that reminds you of home, and so you bring a dish that is comforting to you, comfort food that you ate growing up that that is from your region. Right, and, and of course, migration does provoke these changes in food ways, but it doesn't it doesn't mean that you completely abandon an old cuisine and take on a new one. Right. So you always get these interesting mixes of cuisines and interesting. Meal structures, right? Uh, Krishnendo Ray, for example, at NYU, mm-hmm. one of the things that he's big on is that breakfast somehow is the first meal that changes, right? So you have different changes happening in different ways, and and this is just, I think, one of them. Right, right. And, and change, you know, migration provoking change in the food ways also means just bringing and bringing food, old food ways to new to new worlds, which I think is is wonderful, and. Uh, We'll see where it leads us. <laughs> we shall see. <laughs> right. Well, Ari, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Ari Ariel, and uh, talking on the homeless wars. And I hope you'll join us again. Thank you. Next on A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.